welcome to Best Fit Careers with your host Saurabh Nanda, your podcast for all the information that you need to solve your career and education queries. Today, I am interviewing two very, very special people, people I've worked with, people I've learned from, and they are father-son duo. Today, I'm going to interview Zach Sangeet, who is the world's youngest historian, who I have a privilege of calling my mentee, who I have learned from so much, and then Sangeet Varghis, who has been my mentor since 2009. We worked on a few things, we plan to work on more in the future. Now, both of these special people, they have been guests um, on my forum, I would say, in the past. Zach was SN Mentoring's first futurist, and uh, he was part of the Best Fit Career podcast. I will put the link down below. You should definitely listen to that episode and the confidence that Zach has. And then Sangeet, who had agreed to be a guest on Such Conversations Matter Season 2, I will put the link to that as well. But why, are, am, I, why, why, why am I interviewing both of them together Today, it's because they have written an amazing book called Hidden Links. How random historical events shaped our world. Now, this book is important from so many different perspectives. I'll put the link uh, in the description to, for you to order that book. This is Zach's third book. Zach has written two. Uh, amazing other books as well which I've talked about in the past as well you know he has written essays on understanding world history in three points so world world history in three points and then more world history in three points they're also available on uh, Amazon and I'll put the links down below this book is important because it talks about strategic thinking it talks about how we can learn from history it literally teaches us how we can learn from history and after reading the book, you will realize how connected you are to not only other people in the world right now, but also ancestors of different cultures previously. This will reinforce the idea how we all inhabit the same small little place and how we need to understand that if we take ourselves too seriously, history will repeat itself. More on this and much more what went behind writing the book, what are their thoughts on history, how their entire experience of writing the book has changed them in this interview. So, without wasting any more time, let me invite them over. Hi, Zach. Hi, Sangeet. How are you? Thank you. Very well. Thank you. I'm fine. Thank you. Good to see both of you. And good to see both of you together in the same interview, actually. Has that happened before? Once, yes, as in uh, we were actually recording for uh, for the midday newspaper. So we were both together in one room. So, But this is a new experience as in we are in two different rooms and, and getting recorded. And coming back to your podcast is always a joy, always a joy. And this is the first time we are joining together in your podcast together. Yeah. What about you, Zach? This is also my uh, first time having a uh, having an interview like this from two different devices, and of course, being on your podcast, being on your channel, is all has always been a pleasure. Let's get this. Well, the pleasure has always been mine. Um, I mean, it's 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 truly a joy uh, to you know work with Zach. As and I think uh, Zach, you will probably realize this when you become an adult and you know you're working with younger people. Then you will probably realize the joy that I find and that Sangeet finds in in doing this. And uh, Sangeet, as always, <laughs> it's it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, thank you so much for taking out the time and actually doing this. Um, this was again, you know, one of those things that we decided at the very last moment that we should definitely do this. And it is all because of this book, the latest book from Zach and from Sangeet. Um, this is the first time that uh, the father-son duo have written the book together. And it's about history. And well, Sangeet is, I think, a novice historian, whereas we have a very experienced historian with us, uh, Zach. So uh, how has the experience been for you? Let's let's start with the experienced historian first. For me, this book has been, I think, one of the biggest, being a 12-year-old, I've, I've only seen a small fraction of life. And in that 
small fraction of life. I think this book is something which I will really look back at at some point of time and I will really enjoy. I think the part which I really enjoyed, the experience I really enjoyed writing this book was number one, I got to know my father better, of course. And number two, just watching how the small random events, the events that I had always known of, the events that I had studied, but watching these events as they unfold to show the big picture and, and the same picture. How exactly women empowerment was actually influenced by the Shunnu, who's in fact a clan that I've researched into, but I only got to know how interesting the connection is after writing this book, after working on this book. Excellent. And now on to Sangeet. What did you, how did you experience, you know, working with such an experienced historian? First of all, tell us that. And then we'll come to the book. <laughs> Interesting, Saurabh. Uh, no, like Zach said, uh, uh, he got to know his father better. So I'm hoping that he got to know my good sides rather than <laughs> bad sides as, uh, sides as a parent. But uh, nevertheless, uh, see how it came about is... Uh, when Zach was actually writing his previous books, we used to go out for, for, for our evening walks. The modus operandi which Zach was following was throughout the day, that was the COVID time. So there was no school at all. So he would be shutting himself up whole throughout the day, reading and writing and taking notes. So evening he would want to, he would be urging to discuss whatever he learned back with me. So we would go out for a hour walk across our community. And then he would find it as an opportunity to literally unload the entire learnings which he has had. Whether it is the Ottomans, whether it is the Mughals, whether it is the Cholas, whether it is the South Indian empires, he would just unload it onto me. So, of course, I loved listening to it from a very, uh, very amateur perspective. And my... I was interested in history exactly like I was interested in so many other or I am interested in so many other subjects like uh, sociology or a political science. Um, history was one of the subjects which, I'm in, uh, which I was interested at that point of time. But then when Zach was telling or retelling the things which he has learned, what struck me by profession, uh, I am a strategic planner. I'm a public policy uh, planner. So I look at things from a very pure data perspective. Strategy perspective, how exactly it connects into the big picture. That's, that's essentially what strategy is all about, right? How those small pictures connect into something which is much bigger. So I started... Since that is the that's a trade which which I practice, that's my craft. So I start looking at things from that perspective. And when I looked at it from that perspective, Zach being like you, you mentioned, Zach being a thoroughbred historian or a student of history, let's let's put it that way. Zach was looking at it from an events perspective which is actually what happens with most of the historians also is what, what I realized, right? History is about events. The Battle of Classy or the fall of the Constantinople or the explorations of uh, Alexander the Great. It works in events and you go deep into events. But strategy doesn't work like that. Strategy works in a slightly different perspective, right? So when, when history looks at the depth, strategy looks at it from probably from a three-dimensional perspective. Yes, the depth is important. But for us, the breadth is also important, equally important. The length is also equally important, right? So what happened before that, which led to this? So this is what I started to explore. So when Zach narrated anything to me, 
probably about a week back, 10 days back, a couple of weeks back, I would immediately say, Zach, you know, probably the Silk Road has got some connectivity to connection to, to the Indian independence, which incidentally, he explored that part of it for the first time two years back in exactly the same forum. I am so happy that Zach could explore that on, on this podcast, on, on our channel. And um, this is exactly what, what why these conversations matter so much. This is exactly, you know, one of the podcasts is called Such Conversations Matter because, you know, there are there are so many things that are inside our head, but we when we don't say them out loud and nobody else can probably create an ecosystem or, or an environment where you can reflect on them while speaking them out loud sometimes, you know, uh, this magic doesn't happen. So I'm so happy that, you know, uh, both of you could come together and actually write this. And talking about hidden links, do you think, Sangeet, um, there are there are definitely hidden links and probably not hidden anymore. There are links between Zach's earlier two books. Um, I would like all of you to actually uh, have a look at the previous two books that uh, Zach has written. It is World History in Three Points and then more World History in Three Points. They are available on Amazon and they're published by Hashe. Um, so there are open links to, you know, what Zach... Uh, Zach's current book, Hidden Links, has with his previous books. Sangeet, are there hidden links between the uh, books that you have authored before, the bestsellers, and the numerous hundreds of articles that you have authored in the various columns across the newspapers uh, in India and abroad? Are there hidden links between this book and those writings? I'm going to give you a couple of minutes because I know it's a tough question. Zach, why don't you tell me, what what are the open links between your books and this latest book? My original two books, it looked at a it looked at history from a really very different perspective from what Hidden Links looks at. What my original two books looks at, it, it's in fact the exact opposite of Hidden Links. While Hidden Links is all the pictures, all the small pictures adding up, and then eventually making the big picture. World history in three points and more world history in three points were about all the small pictures. It didn't show how it added up, but it just showed those pictures. In fact, if you look at those books, you'll realize that I'm covering the Chinese Golden Age, the Islamic Golden Age, and the Hindu Golden Age. And at the same time, if you go ahead and read Hidden Links, you will realize that somewhere or the other, these three golden ages are shown somewhere. Everything I wrote about in three points is actually what added up to the big picture in Hidden Links. The way I operated while writing my first two books was to go online, go to all the books which were there in a library or in a bookshelf, and take out the stacks of information that was available. If you were lucky, it would just be around 20 to 50 pages. And in unfortunate events or uh, personalities, like for example, Genghis Khan, you would find yourself reading through not hundreds, but thousands of pages to understand who Genghis Khan really is And from a certain perspective, what really is Genghis Khan? Was he a war machine? Or was he a person who loved his wife? And what I used to do is that I would collect these stacks of data, the data which is from the worm's eye view, and then I would put this down onto, say, uh, an Excel sheet or a Word document. I would analyze it until I found three key important perspectives or three important points on the event or the personality I was studying. Followed by, I would extract these three uh, specific events and then I would note it down, which would later become the hundreds of essays 
from which my, my first two books were made. The way Hidden Links worked was that me and my father would literally scrape off all the data I had found while working on these first two books and find the connections. Of course, using the strategy tools which my dad had access to. We would put this down on paper, analyze what the big event was. For example, my most favorite thread, and I believe my dad's too, is the thread on women empowerment, on how exactly climate change and a small nomadic migration is in some way or the other influencing women empowerment or misogyny. What we did is that we found, we took out all the data which I had in my first two books. Of course, there were other methods which we used to gather our data, but a lot was based on what the first two books had, taking the data, finding the connections, the threads. Most uh, of the, when you're lucky, you would have simple, easily quite obvious links between two events, like for example, uh, an alliance between uh, two empires or a trade road like the Silk Road, or you would have much more minute influences or much more minute links. Like for example, a step migration, how exactly a climate change moved all step herders into the world to eventually influence all of us. And in fact, become all of us. We all happen to be descended from the Shunnu. This is how it, how my first two books and hidden links happen to have a hidden link. Fascinating. Well, the link is no longer hidden anymore. Now we'll go to Sangeet. Sangeet, what do you think are some of the hidden links? I think Zach hinted at some of the things, the strategy tools that you have had at your access, right, uh, available to you. So is are there hidden links between um, the book hidden links and all that you've published uh, earlier? It's actually an interesting question, Swarup, because uh, one of the things which I which I keep telling my friends is that uh, Zach writes about history, and until now, I've always written about future. Right. So my last book was uh, open source leadership, the future of organizations and leadership. And then there is this new book which is coming out, uh, published by Springer Germany. It's out this September, incidentally, along with a couple of my co-authors. It's called The Future Intelligence. The World in 2050. So on the one hand, we have Zach in our family who is writing about history. And on the other hand, I am writing about future. And we always say that my wife... Zach's mother is a present. <laughs> right? Okay. So, uh, are there any connections as such? Uh, I don't know if there are any connections or, or overtly uh, present connections between my last books and, uh, and the current book as such. But the, but the tools remain kind of similar. How we look at the data remains similar. Because one of the things which, which I've realized through my experience with the craft, which, which I handle, is that the first, the ground principle is that uh, you just, if you are dealing with a lot of data, put all the data in one place. Rather than dealing with the data in different, different places, part of it, take out all the data and put out all the data into one particular platform. That gives you revelations. That just being the data in one place gives you revelations, which is exactly what happened in, in our case also, right? So the minute, so like I mentioned earlier, traditional historians look at history as events. I am not a traditional historian, nor am I a trained historian. I look at it from a very fresh perspective. Here is a subject and here is a tool which I have 
and certain knowledge which I've created during during my experience with the craft, can I just go ahead and, and do that? How can I transplant this knowledge onto the subject? So the first thing which I, you, I was surprised as in we were looking at Silk Road, for example, and the thread we, in our mind was very simple thread, as in uh, one of the threads which Zach narrated at some point of time. Uh, there was an evolution of Silk Road at some point of time, say around 250 BC. There was this uh, Han emperor uh, who decided to form the Silk Road. And then from there, the Silk Road keeps on evolving through an Alexander the Great or the Ottoman Empire. So it keeps on evolving. It keeps on evolving forward. And then there is a backtracking of this evolution on what really happened before the Hans. So just we just put the data down. First thing which I realize, there is a rise and fall of Silk Road. It's a beautiful chapter. It's actually, I, I love the chapter. There is, we are seeing the rise and fall of Silk Road multiple times. Second thing, whenever the Silk Road is rising, a few empires are actually rising along with it or vice versa. The Silk Road is actually rising along with some empires. Say, for example, in the initial part of it, we uh, see that the Silk Road rose along with the Hans, along with the Romans, along with the Guptas, it rose, right? But then it fell. I don't know for what reason, it just fell. That's initially, that's all what I was privy to, that it rose and it fell. Then after about 100, 200 years, again it rose. With the Byzantines, with the steppe empires, with the empires in, in, in India, like the Kushans, it, it rose again and it again fell. 100, 200 years later, with the Mongols, I'm seeing it again rising up. So then I asked myself a question, why? So in this book, we have approached one. So we say that, uh, yes, uh, the tools of strategy planning, the tools of data analytics. But we also need to realize that these are, though these sound very complicated, essentially we are trying to simplify the data with all the complicated tools. So in a way, yes, the tools are there. But at times or most of the times, we also act as if we are investigators, detectives. We bounce across each other. Why, why exactly this is falling? Why exactly this is rising? When it is rising, all the empires rise together. When it is falling, all the empires are falling. It's like that Humpty Dumpty, right? Everybody is falling together. So this is where we found a very peculiar pattern. When it is rising, the climate is favorable. They call it as the Roman optimum weather when it rose for the first time. And then when we started reading between the lines, we saw that multiple events of climate crises happening. You would be surprised as in climate crises which are catastrophic in nature. So we call it in our book as a perfect storm coming together. Everything comes together at the same time. There is the climate crisis going on. There are famines which are going on. There are wars which are getting erupted. There is a pandemic which is there behind each and every one. Each and every climate change, there is a pandemic. So whether it is whether it is the Justinian's plague, whether it is the Antonine plague which happened during the second fall, or whether it is a Black Death which is happening during the Mongol time, every single time there is a there is this one, and then eventually resulting in the fall of empires. So 
going back to the question, so the tools which we used, whether it is my previous book or this one, was similar in terms of the first principle, just lay out all the data right on the table and then look at the data with a fresh perspective. And when you're looking things with a completely fresh perspective with no bias in it, you start seeing connections. Wow, excellent. Um, Zach, which did you enjoy writing more, the previous two books or this one? The thing, the fascinating thing about writing three books at the age of 12 years old is that at such a young age, you get to be able to, one, experience all the three. One is um, investigative history. And one is just writing whatever data we have, whether it has biases or whether it doesn't, whether there are changes in the sources or whether it's not, and writing it down in a simplistic form. You can perceive the same data in two different ways. One, in the method of giving a bird's eye view, making something complicated into something simple. And the second one, in hidden links, understanding, sort of digging into what exactly our past has to show to us. I think that both are experiences that I thoroughly enjoyed, in fact. To be frank, World History in Three Points was a much easier way, uh, much easier way to write down uh, history than Hidden Links. Of course, it in itself was a little complicated, considering that you had to distill every single thing that our history textbooks give us, that any average history book that you read gives us, and make it into a simple three points. It was, of course, a task, but it was in no way close to the brevity of work that is required for Hidden Links. It was, of course, made much easier, considering that I had a co-author, but going into the nuances, the change of um, storytelling, how exactly the petty, small squabbles, and yet at the same time, the fall of empires and climate changes, how it all connects, that requires a lot of research. But that research, I truly did enjoy. So I think both World History in Three Point series and Hidden Links they were both experiences and they both really close on how much I enjoyed them, but Hidden Links a little more because to me, it felt like I was Sherlock Holmes. Excellent. I'm so glad that this, um, you know, organically came to being a detective uh, exercise because this is exactly what I tell all my mentees who are interested in history. I'm like, you are going into the biggest mysteries of the world. <laughs> so try to be a detective and then you'll find fun. Excellent. Now tell me, Zach, which mystery did you, you already told me that climate change and, uh, you know, uh, women's right is that particular chapter is, is your favorite. Um, apart from that, and is there any other bit that you truly enjoyed investigating and then coming up with an answer for it? I think one um, factor that I enjoyed uh, research, that I enjoyed working on was uh, Constantine's God complex. How exactly Constantine was, should I say, a friend of Christianity and helped it along its growth. Christianity, until the period of Constantine, it was not a religion of the Roman Empire. It was barely even worshipped. In fact, Christians were considered people to look down upon. It was the pagans in the Roman Empire that, in fact, held the power and persecuted Christians. In fact, the Roman emperor Nero is known for butchering and massacring many of the martyrs in the Bible, in fact. Constantine, at the same time, emerges and he adopts Christianity. He adopts it as his new way to gain power. Because Christianity has some small philosophies that in fact link 
to how Constantine could gain power. For example, Christianity always says, says, help the poor. And this was used by Constantine as a method of handling the economy in Rome, because Rome at that point was going through a downfall in its economy because of um, the lack of slaves. And Constantine was able to use this to his advantage to be able to control the economy. Another really interesting thing I came across was that there was a period of churn, which is which we have termed as the fountainhead epoch in our book. That period was in fact the period when every single thing which we know today is supposed to have emerged. Name it, democracy, religion, it all emerged in just about a few hundred years from 600 to 300 BCE. That is when colossal empires and powers emerged. That is when the greatest of the greatest philosophers emerged. The political theory, the political philosophy, democracy, republic, it all emerged during this age of churn, during the fountainhead epoch. It is, in fact, the fountainhead of every single thing we see today. And thus, even though we believe that our modern technology, our computers, our phones, is probably the greatest invention, the founder of Epoch has something else to say. Wow, that is fascinating. In fact, when you talked about, you know, um, uh, about Christianity and Constantinople and the Roman Empire, I recently had a visit, uh, chance to, you know, uh, visit Turkey, and I went to Cappadocia, a uh, beautiful place, but then uh, one of my favorite reasons to go there was to discover the underground caves in the volcanic uh, rocks over there in places like Derinkuyu and so on. Um, th- those were the caves where a lot of uh, Christian missionaries and uh, monasteries were built. They were completely hidden from the outside world. Uh, they were right inside uh, Turkey, so you know, difficult to reach. There was nothing really over there apart from a desert, so they were safe from a lot of uh, you know uh, Roman. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure Roman campaigns and so on. And so I've, I've done that. There's another list thing on my list now, which is to visit Ethiopia and some of the Christian monasteries and Jewish monasteries over there, because they also have some very colorful history related to it. That's fascinating. And and uh, when you talked about the Fountainhead Epoch, it, it, it uh, really, really interests me in something else because a lot of uh, Indian religions uh, also kind of originated uh, during that period, I mean, if well, Hinduism is always a very different topic, but Buddhism, Jainism, they all came about during that period as well. So that is very, very interesting. Um, Sangeet, coming to you. So, you know, a lot of uh, lot has happened over the last, I would say, two decades when people have tried connecting dots from our histories right it's it's i'm not talking about academic texts by people like jared black or something um but i'm talking about people like um, harari uh, like taleb uh, who have uh, done their bit uh, in in trying and connecting dots right so it it always comes down to the fact that whether it is a particular perspective that a person has uh, whether it is like a circumstantial evidence that we are trying to connect uh, whether there actually is cause and effect to it or not so uh, I do see in the book, I mean, there are there is at least 10 pages of bibliography that you have included. Um, but then um, there is an element of that always present. So uh, have you, how have you been able to counter that particular element that, you know, uh, something that we are saying right now, something that we're claiming in the book does not fall into the, uh, I would say, category of circumstantial evidence uh, or, or, you know, uh, just... Uh, just something that might come across to some people as as contrary to what they already have uh, believed in and so on. This will happen, uh, Saurabh. I would be surprised if this doesn't happen, right? Because people look at events through a lens, whether it is a philosophical lens, whether it is a religious lens, people always look at events through a lens. For them, a particular event is of 
mathematical proportions, while for something else, it might not be. I'll give you an example. Uh, Zach was speaking about Emperor Nero of the Roman Empire. There was this great fire of Rome, which broke out during the Emperor Nero's time. So that's that's where uh, the the fable of Nero playing the harp or the whatever it is while the, while Rome was burning. But Rome was burning, and Nero was absent. So there was this propaganda which was there saying that Nero actually burnt Rome. Nero actually put fire to Rome because Nero wanted to build a new uh, palace for himself and he was not able to get the permission from the Senate and people were assuming that he might have put fire to the uh, fire to the city so that he could build a new city. And the propaganda unfortunately became huge. The economy was in a free fall. And Nero now cannot take the blame. He is the emperor. He is God. So he needed a scapegoat. And he found the scapegoat in Christianity. And what he did is that he rounded up the new Christians at that point of time. And he started killing them one by one. So unfortunately, during this massacre, there were two stalwarts of Christian missionaries or evangelists who became martyrs. They are the pillars upon which Christianity is built upon. St. Peter and St. Paul. During the persecution, both of them were martyred or became martyrs. Christianity, incidentally, is built on those incidents. But for the Roman Empire for, or the Roman history, that is just a subscript. It's, it's, for them, if you read the Roman history at that point of time, it's not even worth mentioning, according to them. So for somebody, it's the most defining moment as far as that event is concerned. For somebody else, it's not even an event. So... I am certain that people would look at it from multiple perspectives. So, for example, there is a very important chapter on Mahabharata, incidentally. And there is a secret of Mahabharata we are unveiling in that. Though you are interviewing us, I would ask you, uh, are you, are you clued in, in Mahabharata at all? Do you know the story, at least peripherally? Oh, Fantastic. Yes. So, uh, in any war, any war, whom do you think should be the should be the commander in chief? Any war? Um, a general with uh, more Fantastic. experience. Fantastic. General with uh, great experience. The best general or the 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 best person who is who can lead the army. So, in the case of Kauravas, it was, of course, the best, the person with the most experience, the person who has seen it all, Bhishma. He was the commander-in-chief of the Kauravad or the Kuru army. Pandavas, if you know the story, at least peripherally, uh, whom, according to you, whom should it have been. Name anybody, name anybody, any Pandav whom you know, if you've watched the Mahabharata serial. Uh, I think Yudhishthir. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, Yudhishthir probably because he was the eldest of, uh, of all or probably even Arjun, right? Yeah. Great warrior, amazing warrior, right? Either it should have been Yudhishthir or it should have been Arjun. 
Arjun because of the prowess in terms of the expertise in war, Yudhishthir because he was the eldest of the Pandavas. But none of them were. None of them ever were the commanders-in-chief as far as Pandavas were concerned. In Pandava army, the army was led by an obscure general called Drishtidyumna. So obscure, nobody would have heard about him. And therein hangs the tale. Why Drishtidyumna, who is an obscure general, and why not Yudhishthira or a Bhima or an Arjun? Because essentially it is a Kurus versus Pandavas. This is where we unravel a mystery in Mahabharata. And it will blow your mind, that mystery which, which, which actually comes out. But most important part of that, that uh, Mahabharata is that. So we kind of trace back. So Mahabharata, though Mahabharata is, is kind of thought of as an epic, a story, a long tale kind of a thing. But, um, uh, but Romila Thapar, one of, the, one of the most famed historians, she says that no, this is the history of India. You cannot... Uh, Put, put a broad brush onto it and, and call it just a, just a tale. No, it is not. It's a very important historical part of the part of India. And there are history which is hidden as far as that is concerned. So what we actually do as part of the book is that we kind of trace the era in which the war took place. We made a broad assumption saying that, yes, this could be true. And from there, we started hypothesizing. We started reading between the lines. So uh, the, the era is speculated to be, some of them say that it happened in 3000 BC. Some of them have, uh, say that it happened uh, 500 AD. So 3000 BC till about 500 AD. That's, that's the kind of time gap which we are talking about uh, between historians and academicians and, uh, and religious scholars and all those things. We kind of pinpointed it to a particular era, a particular period, a small uh, period in which it could have happened. Essentially, that also happens to be in the Fountainhead Epoch, incidentally. Right? Not only that, we not only pinpointed it, but when we actually put it down on paper, on the data set which I'm talking about, another startling thing started coming out. When the Mahabharata war is getting waged in India, an exactly similar event is unfolding in China. Think about it. It's bizarre when India is going through a Mahabharata war where um, majority of the kings in that Indo-Gangetic plains kind of aligned with one of them, right? Uh, a few of them aligned with the Kurus and a few of them aligned with the Pandavs. And almost everybody in the Indo-Gangetic plain, whether it is a central Gangetic plain or the eastern Gangetic plain, almost everybody is aligned. Not almost everybody. All of them are aligned. There were, incidentally, 16 uh, of those kingdoms called Mahajanapatas. All of them are aligned. In China, a bizarre similar thing is happening in China. How freaky is that? How freaky is that? So this is what we call it as the marvels of history. You put it on a sheet of paper, uh, look at it with a completely unbiased viewpoint. It's magical. That is truly amazing. I mean, that gave me so many thoughts about different things as to, 
if you if you really put history out on a piece of paper, you know, like a rectangular uh, piece of paper and with timelines and then you know parallel timelines between different civilizations, and you can just identify uh, similar events happening over there. It, it's just like watching uh, humans uh, do what they do and uh, repeatedly over and over again, which brings me to the very famous, very big cliche. Uh, and, and I would like to have your views on it. Zach, I'll go with you first. Um, history repeats itself. Have you seen that? Do you see it right now? Yes, history does in fact repeat itself. Um, I think uh, about a couple of years back, I spoke at a forum where I spoke about epidemics. How exactly? This was in fact during the COVID period. So I was talking about how exactly a black death or a Spanish flu or an Antoinine plague in fact has a really uncanny similarity to the COVID-19 that was going on in fact at that point in time. And in this book, you will realize that in a few chapters, in the Silk Road chapters, we are talking about how exactly climate change and epidemics go hand in hand in order to create the fall and the rise of empires and trade routes. But what exactly are the uncanny similarities? You wouldn't believe it. In the Black Death, the disease initially came from China and spread to Egypt before it came to the Roman Empire and went out of hand. You would realize that it started in China while the Spanish flu also started in China. And where did COVID-19 start? The Justinian's plague, which is a Black Death uh, plague, from China came to Egypt on, uh, which was spread by rats through the sea and land trade routes before coming to Constantinople or modern Rome or modern Turkey from which it spread to the world. Spanish flu incidentally again comes from China and spreads through the, to the world through means of trade and production while at the same time COVID-19 today, hundreds of years separating the Justinian's plague from the Spanish flu, from COVID-19, we find that COVID-19 originates in China and how does it spread? Through means of trade, through travel. It originates in the same way. It spreads in the same way. But of course, there's hundreds of years of difference. The way it was contained would, would again probably be really different because technology is changing, vaccines are coming. But really, how were all these three diseases contained? Justinian's plague was contained through the usage of bird masks, which had herbs, certain herbs inside of them which is in fact very similar to our N95s with filters instead of herbs. And there was social distancing and quarantining where people were asked to stay in their house, infected people, and not come out. Spanish flu, exact same measures. And COVID-19, today, hundreds of years, separating these three random epidemics which I've chosen out. There are many more. Hundreds of years separating the technology between all of these, the education between all of these three epidemics. And of course, the change in society, the change in medicine. After all of that, history repeats itself in the most uncanny ways. Similarities are appearing. It originates in the same place. It spreads through the same means. And COVID-19, again, is contained through quarantining and social distancing. And thus, history yep. does, in fact, repeat itself. You're so right. You're so right, Zach. Sangeet, history repeats itself. 
and we repeat our mistakes and we repeat not learning from our mistakes why does that happen to humans yes you are you are right sarab uh, history repeats itself but a lot of things cannot be controlled is what i learned out of this exercise if there is one key thing which i take away from writing the book of course uh, it's about the book is actually about how random uh, events shaped our world but more than the randomness it's also a tale of the over importance humans give to ourselves as far as the, as the universe is concerned at the end of it all we realize that the mighty empires the stalwart civilizations the great superpowers of the world we imagine them as the monuments of human achievements the pinnacle of human development but probably we are just speck in history we are all probably speck in history if i were to write a next book on history i would name it in between we just we just happen in between some large events there are climate changes which are happening there are catastrophes which are happening none of them which we can control but we assume that we are the reason for a catastrophe which is happening there we assume that we are the reason for something which is mammothical which is coming up there we are human beings everything is uh, we are infallible probably not you're so right well i have been on a particular journey and this this uh, same similar thought and uh, has has you know kind of percolated in my life and uh, i have learned how to uh, go on that path now and then you know uh, i've i've written a post on it as well on social media but anyhow this is this is exactly uh, you know a lot of uh, what what we need to understand as human beings because we right now also if you just look at the entire world there are parallel events happening in different places which have the same kind of causes and effects and you know uh, exact same uh, modus operandi uh, of of and people just learn from each other and probably they do it that way what do you think um is the current value of history in today's technological world where essentially we are moving towards a civilization which will be um majorly managed by technology controlled well that's that's always a debatable thing and since sangeet you're already writing a book about 2050 um and you know we'll get into that also a little bit but zack what do you think is the current value of history in today's world which is so full of technology everywhere i think up till today in every single talk in every single interview i have given I have always spoken about one philosopher one philosophy which I have taken away throughout my entire life and this philosopher happens to be my most favorite philosopher Georg Hegel Hegel says that in this world as you said we believe that we are the most advanced do we have the greatest technology yes we do do we have the greatest educational system yes we do are our societies the most developed way more developed than what we had in the middle ages or even worse in prehistorical times of course we're more developed but hegel says that this is the problem with humanity it is a very niche understanding of time a very niche understanding 
of development. Hegel says that in order to learn something, we should take an aspect from the past. For example, today, we believe that we are the greatest. We are the most powerful. But what can we learn from an uncivilized barbarian from 1200 CE? An uncivilized barbarian. Genghis Khan is supposed to have led his army on his conquest of the entire world. But what does he have different from a modern failing entrepreneur? The philosopher, Arabic philosopher, Ibn Khaldun says that the most important thing about humanity is the what he terms the asabiya or our togetherness and he says that when an empire's asabiya is at its peak the empire itself is at its peak and the second the empire loses its asabiya it slowly goes down and is probably at its worst state or worse it has withered away Genghis Khan's empire had the strongest Asabiya. Why, you ask? It's because his empire was based on the foundations of nomadic beliefs. Nomadic because his empire originates from just a bunch of steppe herders, a bunch of nomads. And it is because of the nomadic traditions our barbarian from 1200 CE. It is because of these traditions that he has held on to. He was able to create the world's greatest empire and the world's largest contiguous land empire. And that's why taking small aspects from the past, like Asabiya, can help make not only our present, but also our future to come better or greater. Excellent. Vasudev Kaptum Kam, right? And united we stand, otherwise we don't. <laughs> Sangeet, what is your take on this? Hmm. Well, history is uh, definitely an interesting subject. History, like we discussed, it repeats itself. Technology is important. We are at the cusp of a revolution as far as history is concerned. Uh, at least we believe so. At the same time, when we look back, uh, there have been interesting technologies which kind of revolutionized at that point of time also. We believe that an AI is the most important thing which is coming out at this point of time. But uh, a year back, we thought it was uh, it was uh, meta, right? The me we thought that is going to revolutionize the whole world. Another year back, we thought it was IoT, right? This is it. This is the cutting edge which is coming out. So I don't know. Probably AI is the one which is going to redefine our world. I do not have any clairvoyance as far as that is concerned. Probably Meta, IoT, all of those would come together at some point of time. But there have been, uh, say, a discovery of a fire. It is very, very important. We would not have been there if the fire was not discovered. Right? Not just all the rest of the things, but even to do with our dietary practices at that point of time. There was there was a scientific research which I read some time back which said that uh, because human beings learned how to cook food, our brain started developing. We were able to break down the proteins. 
unlike which is a technology which was actually not available or is not available to the rest of the organisms in the world. We were able to break it down. So our brain started developing in a certain fashion. Our gut started developing in a certain fashion. There is some, I'm just get going in a, in a rabbit hole or a, or a bylane at this point of time. There is another research, incidentally, which I, uh, which, uh, I'm deeply interested in, which says that it's our gut which kind of manages everything. Our brain is actually the gut. It's the gut which manages our mood. It's the gut which manages uh, how we feel, uh, how what we do, uh, whether a person would uh, end up going ahead and doing certain things. And in the gut, the trillions of bacteria which, which are in the gut. The contrary lesson which I took off from there is that Probably we exist for the gut, for the sake of the gut. Not just literally, even figuratively also, or figuratively as well as literally, for the, for not just for the gut, but even for the gut bacteria. Probably we are just an outer covering for the gut bacteria so that they transplant from one generation to the next generation part of it. So yes, of course. So the uh, the invention of fire was an important thing. The invention of wheel was was a very very important discovery. AI is definitely an important discovery. In fact, uh, uh, Yuval Noah Harari says that the minute uh, AI has has discovered the power of linguistics, the power of language. That's the end of the world as we know it, is what he says. It's not that the robots are going to be armed and coming in to kill us, but rather the minute it masters the power of language and communication and empathy and all those things can be developed, right? I keep telling people that chat GPT end of the day is just a six-month-old baby. A six-month-old baby gets nurtured by um, a set of parents, a mother and a father, and probably a few relatives, four or five relatives. So the ecosystem which is available as far as a baby is about uh, five, six people. But look at this baby. A billion people are feeding their intelligence onto this baby. And what kind of a, uh, uh, what kind of a mythical creature it would become in, uh, when it is one year old and, and uh, ten years old? It would know the secrets of all of our hearts, right? Absolutely right. In fact, uh, I, I have an uh, AI startup right now and uh, we are trying to create an empathetic counselor. Uh, because well <laughs> because so uh well th thank you so much both of you i wish we had more time but i think we've uh, we've kind of uh, covered a lot of things uh, i really wanted to discuss about uh, another uh, you know fascinating cutting edge kind of discovery which is happening in the world of history uh, related to you know the prehistoric uh, humans uh, 12000 bc and uh, before uh, you know things like the younger dryas flood and uh, discoveries at uh, Gokelik Tepesh in uh, Turkey, in Crete, and so on and so forth. I did want to discuss that, but probably in another episode, right? And um, I, I hope you also understand that, you know, uh, human beings probably borrowed how to make a fire from another species of the hominid, um, you know, genus, uh, the Homo naledi. Uh, now we have concrete evidence uh, that 250,000 years ago, Homo naledi, had burial chambers, they used to have rituals, they used to have fire, and probably that's where our brain actually started developing, and then we got to Homo sapiens eventually. <laughs> well, um, thank you so much, both of you. I would right now uh, want to discuss this book. I'm going to put the link of this book, hidden links, in the description of this video. If you have your copies, uh, Sangeet and uh, Zach, can you just show them on the camera as well? The book is called Hidden Links. Chapter. This is how we actually put down the put down the days, and the book is full of these kind of. Uh, uh, yes, it is a data packed book, of course, but we do have a lot of those uh, ways in which we actually simplify the data.
right? So that's that's a way we actually simplify the data. We actually figure out what what exactly comes from the data. Wow. So if you are interested in how history impacts you today, sitting in your room in front of your computer or mobile device, this is the book that you need to read. And it will help you understand where you came from, why you are doing what you're doing, probably because a lot of other human beings did that already in, in some other part of the world in some other, some other era. Thank you so much, both of you, for being here. It was a pleasure hosting you and having this amazing, amazing conversation with both of you. I uh, wish you the best of luck. And uh, we are going to be talking about all the future things that you're doing in the future as well. So thank you for being here. Thank you very much, Saurabh. We always enjoy the conversation with you. We always enjoy the way you put us at ease and the right kind of questions which you come up with. Thank you and thank you for your encouragement. Thank you very much. I It's always my pleasure to appear on your channel. In fact, you sort of remind me of a stress buster. You have a really calming effect when you question me or when you talk. Thank you very much. I'm so appreciative of that because I'm glad that I could have that effect on you. I hope I can contribute a little bit, you know, in, in helping you do more amazing work in the future, Zach. By the way, please do not miss out on Zach's SCM Youth Talk, which is going to be published soon. Uh, he is the world's youngest historian and he is an SEM Youth Fellow. Uh, he has delivered a wonderful talk on what he does and why it is important, why history is important. Thank you all. Have a great day and share this with all the people you think definitely need to see this. And please go ahead, buy the book, review it on Amazon. We would really appreciate that. Thank you for listening to the Best Fit Careers podcast. We would love to hear from you. So please provide your comments, feedback and questions to us through email or messages on our social media. Please subscribe to us and like our episodes if you found value in them and share them with others who may benefit from this information. Best Fit Careers has been designed to provide you the best information possible to solve your career queries. This podcast is the culmination of years of experience and thousands of hours of counseling, research and guidance sessions. Please find more amazing information at the SN Mentoring online publication. See you in the next episode. Happy careers to you.